Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, we're changing things up a little bit. Instead of interviewing the author of a recent book, I'm interviewing another podcaster about their narrative podcast. So today, I'm interviewing Joel Anderson, staff writer at Slate, co-host of Hang Up and Listen, and the host of seasons three, six, and most recently, eight of Slow Burn. On this episode, I chop it up with Joel about season eight of Slow Burn, titled Becoming Justice Thomas. Welcome to the podcast, Joel. And thanks for having me on, bro. As I mentioned uh, offline, I was like, you know, I'm not an author or a scholar, you know what I'm saying? So I appreciate you, you know, welcoming me into the canon, uh, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, a lot of thanks for having me on. Of course, man, of course. And hey, you know, you're the author of many uh, great articles and some of my favorite podcast moments, man. So... You know, shout out to Bomani Jones, you know, at the right time and, and, and such as well, man. So uh, which which is where I came to uh, came to know you and your um, phenomenal work. And as someone who was recently got into um, uh, experimenting with his narrative podcast, man, you don't you say you ain't a writer, bro. But to be able to put together those scripts, those and, and that, that ain't no joke, bro. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, and so in one way, like I have not published a book, which is, I guess, like my literal interpretation of author, but I will say that anybody, um, I, I do hope that maybe there's a sort of a shifting of the understanding of what it takes to put together narrative podcasts. I would love for that to count as a book. Like even in academia, don't ask me how I know this, but I know that academia sort of takes a dim look at like podcasts and like terms of, you know, working in it. And uh, I just like, no, man, this is a lot of work. This is like writing a book, I think. But, um, you know, maybe maybe the, the, the academics and the scholars that listen to your pod, maybe they can get out there and, and carry that word out there to the ivory towers or whatever. So, because uh, I think yeah. a couple of podcasts, should, uh, th- th- this sort of work should count as a book. And, I, and again, no, I know that, be, you know, being an author of a book is a totally different thing, but um, it's still... Still, still requires a lot of work. Somebody told me they're like, "Yo, like all the words you have to write to put together a narrative podcast, what not as many as you need to put together a book?" You know, so absolutely. And it's also why, like, as I'm moving towards finishing my dissertation and trying to put together some of my syllabus, syllabi rather, I'm placing a narrative podcast in as a is one of the you know writing components because the way that I would, um, like, like you just said, I would. Uh, uh, try to push the folks in power is like, look, the amount of writing that you need is equivalent to whatever the standard is that we need to have students write in a given semester for a class. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, man, we, you know, so we, I would say we could talk all day about podcasts, but technically we're, we're given about a given about an hour. So let, let, yeah. let's get on <laughs> with it, brother. <laughs> and so, um, you know, like I said, after, you know, multiple seasons of Slow Burn, where you produced a season on Big and Tupac and later the L.A. riots, um, I'm interested to know what drew you to producing your third Slow Burn uh, season. 
on Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. So I wish I had a more high-minded explanation for how I landed on Clarence Thomas, but um, I just knew not even long after uh, wrapping up uh, season six of Slow Burn about the LA riots that I wanted to work on something about Clarence Thomas. It just seemed like the right time and the right story. Um, you know, for years, people have been talking about how interesting and fascinating his background story was. People that had read you know, all these other books and you know, read long profiles of him or whatever. And in some ways, I just wanted an excuse to read all that and uh, and not just be left with all this knowledge of Clarence Thomas. I wanted to go somewhere with it, right? Um, so that was a piece of it. And, you know, I kind of was thinking about it. The three seasons I've done, they're all basically early 90s stories when I was a teenager. Um, and so it just that time is really just sort of fixed in my head. Like, you know, when I think of like, the stories that were sort of were the dawning of like my political and uh, personal awakening or whatever, you know, like it was the Clarence Thomas thing. It was LA riots. It was the birth of hip hop or, you know, the, in the, 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 the shift in hip hop at least. So I'm just kind of stuck in that. What is, uh, what is, what is now say stuck in the nineties, you know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> brothers. So that, that's, that's me. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I knew that it would be challenging. I knew that it would be interesting. And I was just kind of hoping for all the people telling me, oh, Clarence Thomas is a really complicated, really an enigmatic person. Um, well, I wanted to see for, see that for myself, uh, to be honest. And I thought that once I pitched it, yeah, I'm thinking, how could that lose? You know, people will, we may not get people to advertise. They may not want to have anything to do with it, which is, yeah. that, that that's a bad choice on my part. But in terms of listenership and interest, I thought that like it would really uh, strike a chord. And it did. I've been listening back and forth to it, um, not only in preparation for this interview, but just for in general. Um, and I noticed, man, you've been doing the, the 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 run of all the different shows and such, man. So so I, I've been seeing some of your other interviews. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I find is interesting <laughs> about, you know, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I have many questions, but uh, but but I, some of them I'll just leave for offline. But um, but but yeah. Speaking of these other seasons, I'm also interested to know, like you know, we're just talking about you know writing or and you know sometimes I ask my authors, um, how do you get better over the course of time? Is writing you like me? You're in graduate school and then you become a professor and then have a long, hopefully, career where you're improving. So as someone who's now done two seasons and now finished the third how did producing the two prior seasons slow burn help you in any way with clarence thomas and season so i'm not a ten thousand hours guy you know uh i'm not you know i like that the malcolm gladwell uh theory uh of stuff i'm not that but i do believe the underlying um argument is interesting like basically everything is more reps like you get better the more you do stuff and so doing those previous two seasons uh, the one on Vivian Pac and the one on L.A. Riots, it helps because you learn so much more about the process. I was sort of raw when I came in to do season three. I had not worked in audio or, or, or podcasting before. And so, you know, when you're putting seasons together, you learn, okay, you get more efficient about the voices that you're going to want to showcase. In short stories that when I did season three with Big Impact, they brought me in. Slate brought me in to do that season. And we didn't have a lot of time, right? There's not a lot of time. There's never enough time to do production and to do all the things. But I come from a background in journalism. I want to talk to everybody. 
Like I just, anybody that's sort of connected to the story, you know, I want to get them, talk to them, write it down, whatever. In audio, you don't have time to do that. It's just not possible. And you got to be more, you got to be uh, more thoughtful about the people that you want to talk and what you talk to them about, all that sort of stuff. So that's one thing that really helped, I think, for this season. Like I, you, you learn, okay, if I get this person, am I really going to get what I need out of them? How essential is that story to the story that we're trying to tell? Um, I also think you, if you do this more, you get better at writing with a listener in mind as opposed to a reader. Um, writing for the ear is different than writing for the eye. And uh, my career, it started at uh, the Associated Press. That was my first job out of college. And we, I, I worked in a, a, the, 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 the Capitol Bureau of Texas, which, not, which is not Austin, but it was like the Control Bureau, which is the bureau that controls all the other bureaus in the state. So I worked in Dallas and sometimes you had to work shifts. One of the shifts was writing broadcast copy for all the radio stations and TV stations around the country. Learning to write for audio is a particular skill. Like it's more active. You can't like you didn't can't get lost in description and uh, you know, adjectives and things like that. Like you gotta be really precise. So that that helped. And then obviously, um, just getting more comfortable with my voice and talking into a microphone. Like wanting to hear the way you sound, like how does my voice sound? Am I bringing enough energy? Am I emphasizing the right words? What words can I not say? Right? Like juror. Juror is a very difficult word for me. You know what I mean? Uh, I've got this Southern thing, you know what I'm saying? So it's just there's this ask. Like, and that's, I know that's also sort of racialized, right? Uh, but it's like a thing that I'm in this space. I want to try to get better at talking and the words that I say and everything else. And so like, that's a big part of it. Just all the reps you get and talking into a microphone. And so, um, so yeah, so I, th those two, two seasons really helped prepare me for this. Like, I do think that this is the best slow burn season I've done because I'm, I'm just so much more experienced than I was when I first got into it. Yeah, I love that. I love hearing that. And, and, it, and you're so right because, um, you know, I had a, massive speech impediment growing up. And mm -hmm. so I went to speech therapy from kindergarten all the way through fifth grade. Wow. I I yeah. So I had a really intense lisp. Um and so for me, like I would not have been able to to your point about, you know, even knowing some words that, you know, to the listener's ear, you can hear the, you know, remnants of that speech impediment, like on the S and H's. Um, yeah. and such or sh yeah. and such but um it also makes me think about to your point uh the reps and you as the and we haven't gotten into this but you as a former college athlete as well you know you're someone who you know you know about what the reps are like to be able to refine plays and such um and, and so i also wonder whether or not that experience also in a in a longitudinal way kind of also maybe prepared you maybe uh, maybe not directly, but maybe a little bit. That's an interesting question. I do think being an athlete helps in a couple of ways. Podcasting is an extremely collaborative endeavor. Um, writing is sort of solitary, like nobody else can do it for you. You know, you got to be there at night. You have an editor and editors are supposed to help you write um, and, and shape things. But podcasting, I got people listening to audio. I got people reaching out to people. I have to entrust the people on my staff to read things I'm not going to read and that they're going to get, that they're going to take from what they read a thing that would 
resonate with me, right? So I'm entrusting a lot of people to do a lot of different things. And like, when you play football, you ain't out there by yourself. You know what I'm saying? I was running back. And so part of being a running back is I got to trust that everybody's going to do their blocking assignment. And so it, it really, that part of it helped with the teamwork. And then I really do think that, you know, man, an athlete, man, you kind of find out, man, you're not going to die if you work hard. You know what I mean? Like, and this is, this is the hardest thing that I've ever done. You know, I was like in ch- professionally in terms of the work and the, the grind and how much time we spend on this stuff. Like it really, it's really, really difficult. But when I think about like the days that it was most hard, you just, you go back to days being in 95 degree weather, you know, running gases and being like, well, you know, I got to get it done. You know, like, I mean, I, I just got to get it done and, you know, nobody else can do it for me. So um, I definitely think that like, yeah, being a, a former college athlete, athlete of any kind, like you play in high school too, you get so people are familiar with that. And that experience definitely can just, uh, it, could, it, it definitely, there are some transferable uh, experiences and skills uh, that, that you can call on in a moment like this, sure. And speaking of calling on, uh, transitioning, it looks like Clarence Thomas has called on uh, someone named Harlan Crow quite a few. <laughs> um, and so as a transition to our next question, um, you know, as you move forward with the planned season, uh, as we now know, um, stories regarding uh, billionaire Harlan Crow's financial and personal relationship with Thomas came up. How did, if at all, you react to these revelations since it seemingly they are directly connected to the story of Thomas and his rise to prominence today? Well, yeah, it would be hard to, to say that it didn't affect the story in some way. One, the, the one way that in which it really did not impact the arc of the story that we were trying to tell is that the story sort of ends at the second set of confirmation hearings in 1991. This is before he's met Harlan Crow um, and is on the bench, right? Um, we don't get into like his jurisprudence and any of that other thing, you know, once he's on the bench. So it didn't affect that, but um, anybody that listened to episode one knows that I've gotten to Clarence Thomas and uh, Mala's house. And that is a house that was at the center of some of the reporting revelations um, through ProPublica about, you know, Harlan Crow owns that house and much of that block and had done all this other stuff for him. So, like, there's no way to duck that. Like, we had to address it. Um, and that was good. That was a good thing. I was happy that there was other people that brought, that, that not only were covering that story, but also that it brought light to the sort of stuff that we were doing. And so we worked that in. And obviously, if you make it all the way to the end of the season, we sort of land there. We land on the Harlan Crow piece of it and what he's done and the influence that he's had in Clarence Thomas's life. Like, I don't think it fundamentally changed the story that we were trying to tell because it still was about, as you mentioned, becoming Justice Thomas. So this is childhood, college years, his professional ascendance. But um, it didn't affect that piece of it, but it did, it, we did have to respond to it and, and, and make sure that like, you know, hey, we're on top of this. Like, this is a, this, it, you're right. It is reflected that relationship with Harlan Crow is uh, not all that dissimilar from working with uh, the guy that first hired him out of law school. Oh, uh, well, hold on, man. Now I can't. What? Why can't I was it uh, Danforth? Was it Danforth? There you go. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Senator Danforth. Man, look at me. I I, I told you I played football. I'm a pretty good But. Uh, but yeah, Danforth, who, you know, is a heir to the Purina fortune, a rich guy himself. Um, yeah, 
he's a rich guy. And so like, that's a guy that hired him and brought him into the, into the Republican party in the first place. And then all this other stuff. So anyway, you know, it, it, which is to say that it is sort of all tied up in there. Uh, and the whole thing, like the, the, these revelations are sort of reflected and his path, you know, uh, to the Supreme court, but yeah, it didn't, the story we were going to tell the story we we're going to tell, but it, it, it definitely spiced things up for us. And like I said, I mean, I, if I don't think if those reporting had come out, I don't think that the interest in the podcast, they, there would have been some metrics, but I don't think it would have been like it is now. So there it is. And so you get into this in the podcast and you had briefly mentioned it before. Um, but I thought it was right to tear here a bit. You had mentioned before about, you know, Clarence Thomas being a misunderstood guy. So as someone who had, gone through the season and um, and and written and helped produce this what do you think is most misunderstood about this well oh, i mean i let me see if i should start a lean i don't think he's as complicated as people think that he is um you know uh, and i think that the people that think he's complicated are people that don't know black people very well which is what i would say is that like there's this sense that he's apart or suffered from black people and black communities and I actually think he's a product of black people and black communities, and he's a product of black conservatives. Um, like his professionally, he got hired at the Missouri Attorney General's office out of college, right, and out of law school. And that as a white guy, he didn't get into the Republican Party, but sort of his ideological shift came from exposure to black conservatives. Um, and I actually think that you know Clarence Thomas, man, he desperately wants the ear of black America. Like he, when he first got started out, he went on these speaking tours. He, you know, the, the way that he rises to prominence is that he goes to a black conservative conference in San Francisco in 1980. Like he's very desirous of, you know, making connections with black conservatives and black Republicans and bringing, you know, proselytizing to black Americans. Like he really, I mean, he would love to be on like a shirt with like Malcolm Martin, whoever gets, you know, gets to be in that fourth spot on the t-shirt. Yeah. You know what I'm yep. saying? Like he would, he would love that. Um, but he doesn't. So, but, but, you know, obviously, you know, most black people find the things that he believes to be repugnant <laughs> or in, you know, odious, just, you know, um, and, 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 and a full turn from like, you know, the civil rights movement. So, um, so yeah, so I think that's sort of the big thing. Like, I don't, I don't find Clarence Thomas to be a complicated person. I think if you're a black person that grew up around black people, you know, plenty of black people who are like Clarence Thomas and believe the things that he believes. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't think that makes him special. What makes him special is how he was able to acquire power and how he's wielded it. Um, not a lot of black people have ever had the sort of power or influence that he's had uh, in America. So that's what makes him different. And so maybe if that's part of the complicating factor, then sure. But um, I really think that, yeah, that all the talk, the enigma, the complicated, you know, all this stuff. I was like, nah, I mean, you just don't know a lot of black people. That's what, that's what that is. And it also makes me think, too, like, in terms of just the moment at which the season comes out, what we also have, the teardown of the thing that he hates the most, yeah. affirmative action. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I mean, I mean, you've come up in this world. Now, you, so you're a little bit younger than me. So I just like the conversations about it. Maybe y'all still have it. I don't know. But the conversations about affirmative action um, in the 80s and 90s, like, there are plenty of Black people that don't believe in it. I'm not, not a majority or anything like that, but there are plenty of folks that are like, we don't need that. We can do for ourselves. You know, we can build our own communities. We can do our own institutions, all this other stuff. We don't need 
the uh, the largesse of white people. We don't need the generosity of white people. We do for ourselves. There are plenty of people that believe that. There are people that you would not even consider to be a black conservatives that believe that, right? Um, and so, yeah, man, so that's, yeah. I mean, that, that, that piece of it, that, you know, that he got a chance to, you know, dismantle um, race-based preferences in America in higher education, that he was able to do that. Um, that's an extension of an old strain of thought within black conservatism. Um, and yeah, like that he was the guy that got to be there and stand over it, you know, uh, stand over it and watch it die, uh, in this country. I'm, you know, I, I, I assume, I hope he's proud of himself because otherwise what was it all for? And, 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 you know, it's funny. I think about just like, um, the mask, you know, and thinking about like, what are, you know, I, uh, my girlfriend and I were, we had a conversation recently about, uh, one of her friends, some of her friends saying, uh, that they don't have an internal monologue. And I'm thinking like, huh, that's weird. But then second of all, in this conversation, what would, what is Clarence Thomas's internal monologue? To your point, because does he, and, and I think, you know, and I know you come from the journalism world, so you, you know, you take a particular slant on these kind of questions, but I do wonder, does he actually believe everything that he said? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, so I saw somebody, uh, a person I really respect. I'm not going to say anything. They're talking about, oh, I don't think Clarence Thomas believes the thing that he says. Like, I think it's all, you know, um, it, it's all sort of a particular construction that he can rationalize the choices that he's made or whatever, right? And I was like, well, given what we know about him, that would be a hell of a long game. You know, I mean, there's no way that he thought that he was going to be a Supreme Court justice when he started out. And some of the things that he's been saying and arguing even going back to the dorm rooms at Holy Cross when he's at the Black Student Union saying, wait, well, we don't need our own all black uh, dorm. You know what I'm saying? Why do we need that? You know, I want, and I want to live with my white roommate too. You know, uh, a guy that was adamantly against interracial relationships early on in his life, right? Um, there's just <laughs> um, the things that he, you know, they, the people that were in the Black Student Union at Holy Cross referred to him as Booker T. Washington, you know, a fundamentally sort of conservative viewpoint on like race relations in America. So, you know, like maybe some of this and the things he believes and argues and fights for, maybe some of it is all just sort of, you know, um, him trying to find an argument that fits in with his like desire for power or money or whatever. And that, it, you know, that he's lying to himself. I just don't think so. Like, I just think, I don't think anybody could have could have plotted out that sort of a long game, but maybe I'm naive. I'm open to the idea that I'm naive about it, but I just I don't I don't see that. Agreed, agreed. And so um, I want to pivot back to uh, Justice Thomas's hometown. We talked about this with Harlan Crow. And so one of my favorite moments of the season came actually quite early. Um, I believe it occurred when you visited mm-hmm. Justice Thomas's uh, hometown of Pinpoint, Georgia, and uh, you were. And so when asked by one of his relatives, I believe you said you were there to retrieve information for a documentary. Um, and, and I think I know why you probably said, that, but we know Slow Burn as a podcast series, but based on the narrative flow, it certainly can be considered a documentary. So with that long preamble said, mm. after three seasons of Slow Burn, what does the podcast medium provide to you that other mediums uh, may not? Well, a, a brief aside. So when you, you mentioned the documentary theme, so I was explaining my presence in the house of his mother, his 94-year-old mother, uh, when I was there. 
And so I just kind of figured if I say that I'm here to do a podcast, she's not going to know what the hell I'm talking about. You know what I mean? So a documentary, a documentary is sort of clo- about as close in terms of medium and like the approach that we're taking to anything else. And you, I mean, you, you could reasonably call it an audio documentary, right? So that's why I thought it was a better fit. And I came up with that top of my head now that I think about it. So, you know, I get, I get, <laughs> that's where my mind went. But, um, but you asked, you know, the, what does the podcast medium provide that other mediums don't? Well, um, that's a good question. Listening to someone is really intimate. Uh, and when you're, uh, maybe I just, as an example, you said you had a girlfriend. When you're dating someone or in a relationship with them, I mean, sex don't count the same as talking. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't tell your girl, well, man, I texted you. Ain't that the same thing? No, like talking. Um, talking is a really intimate form of communication with somebody, right? And it really opens you up. Like, it can make you more vulnerable. Um, and you don't get to play. I mean, sometimes you can play it out in conversation, right? And let, you know, we both, you know, you know, even do this. I mean, behind, you know, behind the curtain, you know, like we prepare when we, when we right. jump onto these mics, right? Um, but still, like, we've gone in directions that we didn't think we would go. Like, we've had a side or whatever. And that's what talking can do. Um, and certainly for people for, who are interviewed, like, um, uh, there's a relief to not appearing on camera. I, I found in my career when I've shown up some big stories in interviews, like, and that's, this is just when I'm in print, um, and like TV shows up, like with cameras or whatever, people get this on, they don't want to be on there. It's like they're, they feel really publicly exposed. Um, when you bring, you know, maybe a recording device or whatever, uh, there, it's not quite the same thing. It's not nearly as intrusive, intrusive, and it can lead um, people to sort of relax. Uh, and then, you know, my training is in print. Like I'm a print writer. I worked in newspapers, wire services, and now for online website. But I, as much as I love print, that is the foundation of everything I do. I first and foremost consider myself a writer. Um, something can be lost in print. Like a story is can be really two dimensional. It's on the page. It's on the screen, unless the writer is particularly evocative and descriptive, uh, it, to make it three dimensional, right? Uh, and so, I, I think that like podcasts give you just gives you an alternative to where you can hear things, you stick with it, you know, like you know, it's just a it's just a really different uh, way of engaging with people and engaging with stories. And you know, again, like I feel like if you like podcasts, like there's something for you. There's something you out there no matter what so um you know i don't think that's always i mean all the mediums have you know different ways of reaching people and they're you know you know it's not really the medium it's the work in, in and of itself but um i think for me like i really liked how intimate it is like people really engage with my work in podcasting in a way they never did with friends and um yeah that that's what's sort of exciting to see people like hear people's voice like hearing me writing down Clarence Thomas's mama's quotes is not the same as you hearing her talk to you, right? So, um, yeah, yeah, and, and and I say that as well just because, like, um, you know, I'm a Slate Plus member too, so I got to hear some of the, you know, longer course of course, yeah. Because the other part too is like preparing for this uh this interview. I also was interested in, you know, and and I've listened to Slade and and uh engage with some of their content over the years um and so i know that they have these additional opportunities for for plus members 
And so I was interested in hearing, like, and, and we'll get to this, I think, in one of the uh, next questions, but I heard your conversation with uh, Leah Wright Rigor, um and, and, um, and other folks as well. And to your to, you know, question about you know, what is podcast mean uh, the chance to have these, you know, full interviews uh that we mm-hmm. hear that, you know, you then you realize, oh wow, this is an hour long, you know, interview oh, that yeah. ultimately probably maybe uses two to three minutes at the most, depending on the person. Yeah. I, I, did, I don't think I had an interview. We interviewed, I'll, I'll just say 40 people. I'll be conservative. Um, maybe less, maybe a little less. But none of the conversations were shorter than an hour, right? That's a lot of tape. That's a lot of tape. You have to make a lot of different choices about what you're going to put, how you present it in there. So, yeah, man, like there's just, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you listened to the Slate Plus. So even that, I get kind of frustrated. I'm like, oh, you didn't hear the whole conversation. You still didn't hear the whole conversation, right? Um, but yeah, man, it's it, it goes on and on and on and on and on. And yeah, we're, so what you hear is a very, I mean, hopefully, you know, expertly produced, uh, you know, piece of work. But yeah, we're, we're cobbling it together from so much tape. And that's not even counting the archival tape that's out there, too. So. And actually, this is a perfect transition to actually get into um, a question about challenges. So we just talked about it, like if if we take you at the word of 40, everything being at least an hour, that, that's that's a big number, my brother. Yeah, so, man. No, the, I'm, I'm, I'm just know what presented you the biggest single challenge to produce this season? I mean, there was so many, man. I mean, like, I just, without even getting into it, like, personally, it was very difficult. Like, first, I, I mean, I just, I have a 16-month-old son. I'd never done this, a project like this with a child before. Like, just so, I have to be so much more efficient with my time than I used to be. Um, I just, there's no time to waste. So, I got to get right to it. Not a lot of time to be, you know, ponderous or, you know, kind of, you know, chase, you know, a tangents or whatever. But um, I think probably, though, you the single biggest challenge was making story choices and figured out who, who was going to speak to us. Um, you know, we had to sort of prove to conservatives like, uh, you know, Dan Forth or Armstrong Williams, whoever, that someone from slate.com, let alone me, right. You know, like if you, to the, I'm not famous, but it, to the extent that anybody knows my profile or heard, you know, saw my account on Twitter, you might be like, oh, that guy's not going to give the story or Clarence Thomas a fair shake, right? So we had to convince them that, no, like, actually, we're capable of that. Like, this is not, I didn't intend this to be a hit piece because I don't think that would be interesting, and that's there's plenty of that. So, yeah, getting those folks to talk, uh, the timing and staffing of this, like you said, yeah, for, you know, all these interviews, you got to distill them, figure out what you want, the writing in and of itself, the recording, um, all that, like, that's a lot, a lot of time, bro. So, and we don't have a very big team. Um, so that part of it, and then just, and we talked about the top here, the evolving nature of the stories about Clarence Thomas this year. Like, we just, in, in some ways, it's like, great, this is awesome. They're driving interest in the story. Stop. Don't write anything. Don't, don't reveal anything else, because I don't want to have to do too much <laughs> changing on the script or whatever. Um, so, like, you know, sort of the anxiety uh, around that stuff too. I was like, oh man, there's more revelations. What else is going to happen? Where are they going to turn up? Where is this going to go? 
blah, blah, blah. Like that part of it was also sort of nerve wracking as well. But yeah, I, yeah, probably getting like the likes of Danforth and Armstrong Williams to talk. Although I will say um, real quickly is that I, you know, I, I dealt with Armstrong Williams several years before I wrote a piece about Ben Carson potentially running for president in 2015. And Armstrong Williams was the guy behind that campaign. And so Armstrong Williams, neither Ben Carson nor Armstrong Williams uh, helped me with that story. Did not talk to me, didn't submit to an interview. I wrote the story, finished it. And then a day later, I get a call from Armstrong Williams and he's like, brother, you were really fair. That, this is an amazing story, which is also kind of scary. I'm like, why does Armstrong Williams have this story so much? <laughs> <laughs> like, what's going on here? Uh, but we, I'm not gonna say we struck up a relationship, but it was just like, okay, things happened. He would call me, I might call him, whatever. And so when this came, um, the time came for this, I was able to reach out to him and say, hey, I'm, I'm working on this. Do you think you can help? So he did. So um, yeah. Anyway, so but then you, then you got to go from him to like a John Danforth, and I, you know, they are both conservatives, they're both Republicans, but Armstrong Williams and John Danforth don't move in the same circle. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And, and actually, that to me, this particular point is actually perfect. Even going back to what you're saying about Clarence Thomas and the fact that if we're being truthful and honest with ourselves and the arc of our families, there are Clarence Thomases. It depends on whether or not they voice those kind of opinions publicly or, you know, family reunions or other family gatherings, but they're there. He's, he's not a foreign object. He comes from black people. Yeah. I mean, and, some of the people that have said the worst things about welfare recipients are black people in my life, right? You know what I mean? Some of the people that, that are most skeptical, uh, the, the least generous to poor black people often have been black people in my life, right? So, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, he, oh, he's yeah. firmly from that tradition, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so it also makes me think as well, you know, this is a podcast about books, and so I would be remiss to not, you know, ask a question regarding books. And so we had already brought up um uh Leah Wright Rigor. And so um this was more of an open question when I initially wrote it. But since we're already here, can you also talk to us about, you know, your interview with her and also how her book uh may have helped you um in in bringing forth and con really contextualizing could Clarence Thomas. Oh yeah, no. So Leah is great, man. I'm glad you mentioned it because uh, I, I, I knew that the books might come up here. And so yeah, no, that book, man, is fascinating. At talking about sort of the uh, paradox of like black Republicans, man. And I knew early on that when we did this season that I wanted to kind of stretch our legs and talk a little bit about black conservatism. We didn't necessarily get to do it quite the way that I wanted, but it was like it was a necessity for me to have her on there to at least talk about the history of affirmative action and how it came up. And yeah, I mean, you know, the idea that affirmative action really has its roots and took off in this country in the Nixon administration, for instance, right? Like that's nothing that if you don't study though, you would never guess it, right? Um, and then, yeah, uh, so that book was, I mean, just just so helpful, so, so important. Um, I mean, you know, she talked a little bit. We didn't even get into it in the podcast, but uh, Jay Parker, the so-called the so-called founding father of the Black Conservative movement, and he, he was founder of something called the Lincoln Institute for Research and Education. And like, part of that institute was a quarterly journal called the Lincoln Review. Clarence Thomas wrote for that. Thomas Sowell wrote for that. Like, pretty much any big name Black conservative that you can think of in America today wrote for that. Um, like. 
I mean, it would be fair to say that Clarence Thomas was a protege of Jay Parker, right? Um, so like learning that he was steeped in that tradition and came through that pipeline, like that was really good at informing the story that I want to tell. As I mentioned earlier, that like black, you know, Clarence Thomas, he did work for white folks and do what white folks wanted to do, but like he was getting his knowledge, his his brain fed by black conservatives. Um, and so yeah, that that part of the book was you know really important for us. But I mean, there was other books uh, that you know that we really that we leaned on real heavy um, in doing this too, of course. Yeah, man. And so you know, we're talking about you know secondary sources, but I'm interested also on the source piece about oral history and mm-hmm. in these interviews that you uh, did because it, to me, one of the coolest parts about the podcast was episode one when you would hear like you closing the door, you making the approach. We don't even get to feel how hot it might have been, you know, for for instance, <laughs> especially for someone like yourself who I know you've, you know, from Texas, had lived in Florida and these other places, DC, but you're out in, you know, you're out in California, man. So the heat's a little different than it is than, you know, in the Gullah Geechee uh, region. And so, um, so take us through the process for you even uh, to find where uh, Clarence Thomas's mother, uh, Miss Leola Williams, and members of the Thomas family live today. So I want to give a couple props here. One uh, is my producing team, Derek, John, Josh Levine, um, Sophie Summergrad, uh, Sam Kim, Sophie Codner, um, and I don't think, I, oh, Joel Meyer, who came on a little bit later. Um, they're the people that went through copious amounts of tape. I forgot about all that stuff. The stuff that you hear at the top of the episode, like I did wear a mic and I'm knocking on doors and all that stuff, but I didn't, I'm thinking none of that stuff is usual, usable. Like, I'm just like, that's just background noise. That's just audio. I didn't, it never occurred to me that we could use that as content, that we could, you know, put that in the season. Um, so, you know, uh, the, uh, they get a lot of props for that. They saw something in my interactions with those people and knocking on those doors that I didn't even see for myself, which is what you want to talk about working as part of a team. Like I trusted them and they delivered, you know what I mean? So like, that was a, that was a, a, a big part of it. But, um, uh, so yeah. So anyway, so that was, that was, a, that was, a, that was a really important thing. But, um, the other piece of it is that Michael Fletcher, who works at ESPN, or technically Fanscape, former Washington Post reporter, he co-authored a book with Kevin Mariner, you know, now the uh, LA Times uh, top editor, uh, called Supreme Discomfort. It came out, uh, I think, t- 2007, which was a biography of Clarence Thomas. And so I read that. That was a book that very helped us to put in the season together. And I called Michael, and uh, he was just like, well, if you're going to go talk to people, like, I'm just trying to get advice on what to do, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, yo, like, if you're going to do this, like, you got to go down there. Like, these are not people you're going to get off the phone. You know, you're going to have to go to Savannah. And we knew we were going to have to go down there anyway, but that just sort of cinched it. So I go down there. And you, you mentioned, man, I actually lived in Atlanta for a couple of years. Atlanta's my favorite city in the country. I love it. Ah, uh, okay, okay, okay. I, 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 I grew up wanting to be a Morehouse kid. Like, yeah, I'm, Atlanta's my city. You know what I'm saying? I love it. Um, which is funny for a dude. I'm so sorry, but we're supposed to have beef, but I like it. Right. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, so I knew going down there, you know, we have all our reporting tricks, you know, Lexus, Nexus, all this other stuff to get addresses. But, you know, sometimes you just got to knock on doors. And so I was out knocking on doors, interviewing people, 
And I had an interview with a gentleman you'll hear in episode one and again in episode four, Lester Johnson, a friend of Clarence Thompson's, you know, going back to Savannah. And I interviewed him for four hours at his office. And at the end of it, he's like, I think it was Ramadan. He was like, yo, I'm going to go. Uh, I got to go to the mosque today. Um, and I think he mentioned that he might stop by and see Clarence Thomas's mom. And so immediately I just get quiet and I'm like, let me look up where the, where the mosque is. And then I cross-referenced it with addresses that were associated with the family. And I was like, well, I'm just going to knock on these doors. And that's how we ended up there. And that's how I ended up going to Miss Leola's place. Um, so yeah, man, it's just, you know, it's just, <laughs> and it, it requires a lot, you know, you know, I needed the nudge from Michael Fletcher and I needed the tip from uh, Mr. Johnson uh, to get there. So yeah, man, there's a lot of different ways you can do this sort of stuff, but um, it all sort of came together at that time. And it's, and that to me is so interesting because going back to your episode on Right Time with Almighty Jones, you had actually mentioned um, differences between, you know, you're of a different generation than the reporters that are coming up. Like I went to FAM. So a lot of my friends are, you know, journalists from the J school at FAM. So as someone who's uh, between 30 and 32, they're of a different generation. So you grew up where in the game where going, not, you know, doing cold knocks on people's doors, it's a different world than it is now. Yeah. 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 No, man, I, when I remember, when I first got to, the, I mean, it always has been there. When I first got to the AP, it was just like, all right, somebody got shot. Go on out there and go see what you can find. Go talk to people, knock on doors. And so that that's a fundamental part of the background and the training that I've always had. And that's the way I find to be easiest uh, to do reporting. Because although, I mean, obviously times are changing. People don't do that sort of interfacing anymore. Like, it's, it's scary to go knock on somebody's door. I'm not denying that. But um, I also find that sometimes, too, that it's much harder to turn down somebody if they've showed up at your front door. Because I've I've done the work of like showing I'm serious. Like I've come from Palo Alto to Savannah. It's harder to get hard to get further apart in this country than Palo Alto and Savannah to make that drive you know, make that flight and and that drive. Um and so if I show up, you know that I'm serious. And that's what I've always thought. Showing up at somebody's front door shows that you're serious. Um, and so yeah, like I mean obviously there's a lot of different ways to report. Uh, pro, I don't think ProPublica knocked on that front door. You know what I mean? And they still got a good story, but it's just, that's that's what I do. That's my, that's the way I like to interface with folks on my interview. So There it is, man. And so um, as we wrap things up real quick, uh, just uh, two more questions here, man. Um, so I'm very interested to know always. So we hear the four episodes. We hear the, you know, episodes that y'all have for Slate Plus members and Go become Slate Plus members, y'all. These are good, really helpful um, uh, contexts. Um, and they're also entertaining, too. Well, thank you. Thank you. Of course, of course. But I'm also interested to know you can't put everything. Clearly, as we spoke about before, you're not going to put 40 hours plus mm. into a four-episode season. So, mm. I'm, so I want to know, what did you leave on the cutting room floor that you wish could have made the series? So, that's a good question. That's really tough. I had to think about this. I mean, I don't know that we left another cutter or floor, but it was a it was in earlier outlines. I really wanted to go a little bit longer on Thurgood Marshall, and like him being the first Black Justice, um, and what that meant, right? Because 
I mean, the idea that Clarence Thomas inherited what was Thurgood Marshall's seat was offensive to many black civil rights leaders, like on its face. They're like this guy who was at the center of the Brown v. Board of Education, uh, you know, one of the greatest civil rights attorneys of not only our lifetime, but in American history, um, and becomes the first black justice. And that this dude, Clarence Thomas, 43 years old, been a federal judge for not even a year, uh, I mean, not through the Reagan revolution, that's the guy that's going to replace Thurgood Thomas. Like that was patently offensive to a lot of people. And I wish we could have talked a little bit more about that. And also the fact that Thurgood Thomas, Thurgood Marshall, can I curse on this podcast? Yes, you can. Oh, okay. Thurgood, Thurgood Marshall didn't fuck with Clarence Thomas. You know what I mean? Like he just, you know, I mean, you can go think, you can Google the quotes that he has about him, about, you know, black snakes, you know, just as, you know, they're white snakes or whatever, you know? So, um, yeah, man, I wish we'd had a little bit more time and a little more space to go along on that. And it, it, like, if I was going to do a a bonus episode or something like that, if there was a way to do like a little, little story, uh, I would I would love to, to talk a little bit more about Thurgood Marshall because I feel like his legacy. I mean, we're getting, I mean, we're getting so far into his. You know, I mean, it's been almost thirty years since Thurgood Marshall died, man. I bet there's a lot of people that don't know anything about him and. If you go to school in some states, you might never learn about him now. You know what I mean? Yep. yep. So um, I think his story is really important, and I wish we could have done more on it. But, you know, you got to make choices, right? So that that was oh, one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. So um, so right now, I think your podcast does as well as any um, piece of journalism or any other pieces of history that's been written about really understanding how understand the honestly he's not dead obviously but like his legacy because his obviously his legacy is still being um developed now but we see the clear like skeleton of the future and yeah. how a lot of our future is going to be wrapped in the thomas court so as we uh clean up shop here what do you see right now as Clarence thomas's legacy on the supreme court bench I think maybe even more importantly, an African American life. Wow, his legacy. Okay, man. Um, that is a really hard question. Um, you know, I think that his legacy is going to be that that he was a useful that that America that American Republicans and conservatives found in him a useful tool for their project of rolling back the civil rights advancements of a previous generation. That they they sought out, they were looking, I mean, the, the people that are against affirmative action, uh, they don't believe in race-based preferences, that they looked, they were looking for somebody specifically who there would be a vessel through which they could do this project of, you know, uh, rolling back the, the excesses of the 60s and the 70s. And that, he was successful in doing that. Like whatever you think about Clarence Thomas and you know what he's done and where he's from and his qualifications to be on the bench or whatever, it's hard to argue that he hasn't been successful, you know, in, in his project. I mean, affirmative action is dead, gutted through voting rights act, um, you know, uh, uh Dobbs, uh, you know, so Roe v. Wade has been overturned. Um all the things that they wanted, all the things that he set out to do, 
uh, at the behest of Ronald Reagan and, and George Bush, the original, um, he did. And um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call him an enemy of his people, but, um, you know, you're sort of looking at like what the, um, a person that has be become so embittered and so far removed from his people and like what they can be capable of if they get a little bit of power. Man. And uh, so I think that ultimately that's going to be a legacy. He's going to be, you know, one of the most important black American figures in history. And it's going to be because he helped to, uh, uh, to destroy, you know, many of the gains of the civil rights movement. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, there'll be another generation. We'll get a chance to, you know, get these games back or whatever, or, you know, recapture some of what has been lost. But, um, you know, I think that, that is his legacy. He won. Five times more, man. He's speaking of that. Like, I, I want to also say this, uh, one of the things that your, that your season did for me was I had actually never known Jenny Thomas called Anita Hill. I'm so glad you said that. I had never, and obviously, I thought, people, our, knew that. I thought I people knew that. I thought that was widely known, and I was like, you really need to put that in there. People remember that story, but I'm, I'm so glad that you say that because more people have said that. And I'm like, okay, I was stupid. People did not, they missed that when that came out. I, you know, I, so I was born, the confirmation was what, 91? 91, uh huh. So I was born the year after. And so, like you, I knew who Clarence Thomas was effectively the majority of my life. Like, you're right. In part because of the punchline. But the moment that inaugurated him into the broader, you know, American public through the 91 confirmation hearing, I had no idea that there was a moment in my life when mm -hmm. which Jenny Thomas yeah. called. Yeah. And and the fact that uh, y'all played it and you get to hear it, I'm thinking like, yo, what the hell is, yeah. first of all, what's the hell wrong with this? Yeah, she crazy, man. It's great. That's like, like, shit, right? yeah. like, how do you going to call this lady? How are you going to call Professor Hill? And if I'm not mistaken, this was not that long ago from now, 20, right? This, I would say 2010 or 2011. It was something like that, right? Yeah, yeah like a no, so, yeah. And so to me, um, like, I don't know who is responsible specifically about putting it in, in, in terms of you and your team. But kudos to y'all, because for someone like me who recently turned 31, that was like, because we knew that, because also there was a documentary that had come out front and line that right. almost coincided at the same time. So I actually think for listeners, I think you should both listen and subscribe to uh, Slate and Slate Plus. But also to read to, to to watch the documentary because I think that they that they complement each other yeah. in, in really good ways, man. And so, Joel, one last question, man. Any more slow burns for you? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I don't know what I want to do. Okay. To be honest, uh, I you know I'm off right now. I don't know when this is ready. Uh, but I'm off right now for uh, a while and I'm just kind of taking time to recharge and handle some stuff that I dropped. But, uh, you know, I want to keep doing ambitious work. And, and whether that's slow burn or something else, I guess that's to be determined. But I've already kind of got an idea in my head about what I want to do next. And, and so whoever wants it, you know what I'm saying, uh, they'll get it. <laughs> hey man well the airways the new books in african-american studies can always be a launching board for some of these exploratory ideas man so after you recharge your battery and 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 do do what you got to do man 
come back and you know let's chop it up again because I would love to say, brother, that this was a honestly let me tell you, bro, this was the sometimes you talk about ambitious ideas. I didn't know who you were. I knew who you were, but I didn't know you like that. So shout out to Twitter slash X. We're making this possible because, <laughs> you know, man, like I said, I've been following your work, man. And like I said, shout out to Bomani Jones. Don't know if you're going to hear this, man. But but thank you for connecting uh, Joel from Missouri City to me because, you know, whether it's uh, the the trivia game that y'all had maybe a year ago, man, y'all. Oh, yeah, with Bob and Wiener. Man, look, I also, I just, I was like, I was like, man, everybody thought Mina was going to beat me. And I'm like, why not think Mina going to beat me in? Get a sports trailer character. Well, I just, I don't know. I kind of, you know, I was joking <laughs> about it, but I'm like, wait, why not? Why don't think she just going to beat me out of her hand? You know what I'm saying? So anyway, so yeah. So I was kind of salty. We got <laughs> Yeah, brother. And y'all, no, of course, man. One of the one of the best minds in all the sports, man. And especially yeah. looking at football, man. So so shout out to Amina Kimes as well. And so today, y'all, thank you so much for listening to this episode of New Books in African American Studies. And if you've gotten to this point, you don't know who I'm talking to. We're talking with uh, Joel Anderson, staff writer from uh, Slate. Also, he's the co-host of Hang Up and Listen, another great podcast uh, that is in my uh, feed. And he's also the host of seasons three, six, not nine, but eight of Slow Burn. <laughs> and so on this episode, man, I'm just really happy that we had a chance to talk with you, man. And uh, God bless you and your family. And I'm really Looking forward to our next conversation. And, uh, you know, we're, and also, man, I don't usually do this, man, but where can folks find you to, to plug some of your, your, your work, man? I appreciate you saying that, man. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know how long I'm going to be on X or Twitter. I mean, who knows? But, I mean, like, you can't re replicate all these dynamics on thread. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. But I'm on uh, Twitter slash X by Joel Anderson. Uh, you can, you know, uh, Find my work on Slate.com. Uh, if you just look up Slate and Joel Anderson, you'll find links to my work. Um, I've worked at BuzzFeed and ESPN and other places. So, yeah, I, I need to probably get a website together. Maybe one day someday. I don't know. Because uh, I can't keep up with all that stuff. But, um, yeah, man, so that's that's where you can tend to find me. So, uh, yeah, man, look, bro, like, thank you for having me, man. It's always, you know, a pleasure to chop it up, man. And, we, you know, we've been chatting back and forth the last couple of years or whatever, man. So I'm glad we finally got to do this. When you come out to the Bay, man, come holler at your boy. All right. Hey, man, I will, man, I will. And so, y'all, once again, this is Adam McNeil from New Books and African American Studies. Until next time, y'all, over and out.